This podcast provides general information, not a substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized guidance. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Psych Rounds. We have another very special episode for you guys today. Uh, We have put together the first of our review series. So whether you are studying for your boards, if that's Comlex, Shelf, USMLE, or Prite, we hope that these questions help you guys out. Uh, We have Dr. Larry Wang, of course, in the studio and a special guest, Dr. Bradley Miller. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to him so he can introduce himself. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm a first-year psychiatry resident, so an intern. I've been rotating on the psych wards for the past six months, approximately on the adult inpatient and geriatric inpatient units, and follower of the podcast, so happy to be here. Great, and Brad, we are glad to have you joining us today. Uh, I'm going to hand it over to Larry. We have about five questions to go through. All right, so let's just get started then. Question number one, you are a medical student on an inpatient psychiatric floor. Your patient presents with hypersomnolence, anhedonia, decreased appetite, suicide ideation, and significant psychomotor retardation. The patient screens negative for other comorbid psychiatric conditions and does not complain of anxiety. The patient notes that they have not tried any previous medications. They endorse concern about loss of libido, and being an honors medical student, you recommend starting medications during table round. What is the mechanism of action of the medication you suggest? So answer choice A, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, B, predominant CERT and NET inhibition, C, antagonizing the alpha-2 adrenergic receptor, as well as select serotonin receptors, or D, inhibitor of NET and DAT. So I guess this is my chance now to take it away. Um, So the first thing that strikes me in this question stem is that this appears to be describing a patient with a potential major depressive disorder. You know, we don't get a timeline, but I'm going to assume that it it fulfills that criteria. You know, we, we have the ample criteria to meet that. Now, of course, the first-line medications that come to mind are things like SSRIs, SNRIs. However, the patient being very concerned about their loss of libido is striking here. So as the world-renowned honors student, um, I am inclined to look towards a medication that is suitable to the patient's side effect sort of concerns. One of the most important things in psych and all of medicine is to try to work with your patient around what their concerns really are and find medications that are agreeable to them in terms of side effects. So going for the antidepressant that could be first line that is less associated with uh, sexual side effects being bupropion is what comes to mind here, which if we remember our uh, study materials, it is a norepinephrine and dopamine transporter inhibitor. So that is option D, the NET and DAT inhibitor. Yeah. Hey, Brad, great job uh, with breaking that question down. Um, absolutely. D is the correct answer in this question. Uh, you're absolutely right. We didn't give a time frame. So if you are going to be uh, dotting your I's and crossing your T's, you are going to want that uh, being two weeks or greater for MDD. Now, however, you nailed it on the head that we have to be concerned about what our patients are concerned about. 
Um, so with this individual being concerned of the loss of libido, um, as well as um, having some of this depression, Wellbutrin, also known by its generic name of Propion, is a great option. So let's just break down the other answer choices here real quick. Uh, now, option A, uh, <laughs> the name is the mechanism of action. SSRI is also known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, those are going to inhibit the reuptake of serotonin at the synapse, which results in increased serotonin levels. Now, option B, predominant CERT and NET inhibition. Now, remember that this is going to be actually one of the mechanisms of action that is shared between TCAs and other things like SNRIs, which Brad also mentioned. These will be medications with things like venlafaxine, also known as Effexor, um, and other SNRIs that are frequently used. Option C, antagonizing the alpha-2 adrenergic receptors as well as select serotonin receptors. This is actually known as mirtazapine, brand name Remeron. Uh, option D, Brad, you nailed it on the head again. This is going to be bupropion. It is an inhibitor of norepinephrine transport and dopamine transport as well too, increasing the levels of both norepinephrine and dopamine in the synapse. Uh, this would also be a good medication for this patient because you can also note that they are exhibiting some psychomotor retardation or slowing. Uh, now, this is another key point because norepinephrine and dopamine can be stimulating to a patient. So with someone who has this anhedonia, this slowing, this decreased appetite, uh, they're kind of like a slug, you know, just very slow, very unmotivated. This would be a good option for a patient like this. Um, so yeah, great, great job, Brad. I was going to also say just one other thing that kind of strikes me about the question real quick is that you specified that they do not have anxiety. I was going to ask uh, Dr. Wang, do you feel like, you know, having anxiety would preclude a, a patient from our consideration of Wellbutrin? So I think I briefly talked about this during the P-Program episode, but at least at a population level does not seem to worsen anxiety. So... Maybe not, but at the same time, it's something that anecdotally I have seen worsen anxiety in the short term. So if they had really, really bad anxiety, I might, you know, consider a different medication. But if it's mild to moderate, I wouldn't be too worried, I would say. Yeah, and um, that's a, a very good point there, Larry. We do have a bonus question for any of our medical students listening. Uh, so are you up for it, Brad? Uh, yes, of course. All right. Uh, now, name one significant contraindication to starting bupropion. Yeah, so the I think textbook one that is going to be the trending on test is going to be an eating disorder such as anorexia but, uh, or bulimia. However, I believe, and I could be corrected if, if I'm incorrect, I've also heard that with the XR formulation that we use nowadays, that the risk is sort of uh, maybe overemphasized and comes from the data that is from the older, more rapidly absorbing formulations. Yeah, and absolutely right. So with the eating disorder, the thing that you're concerned about potentially is the seizure history. Uh, so when Wellbutrin first came out with just the immediate release formulation, uh, it was actually prescribed sometimes at doses even higher than 450 milligrams per day. Um, and this did have an increased risk risk of seizures. 
Um, now, you're absolutely right, Brad, that with the XR formulation uh, and the SR formulation, which are frequently used today, uh, now the, the risk of that is less. Um, I will say, however, though, that that risk is negated, though, if patients do crush or snort their Wellbutrin. Obviously, none of us advise that you do that. Um, that is something that's popular in the uh, inmate population. But uh, nevertheless, definitely something to keep in mind when you're on your board exams, because this is one of those topics they really like to hit. Anything else you'd like to add, Larry? No, I think we covered pretty much all of it. All right. You ready for the next question, Brad? Sure am. All right. You're one for one. Let's do it. So question number two, you are a medical student working a night shift in the emergency department. The attending asks you to go examine a patient. After you examine the patient, you note the patient's reflexes were rated three out of four. The patient states he recently saw his psychiatrist who added an unknown medication. Patient vitals are as follows. Blood pressure. 140 over 75, temperature 101.2 degrees Fahrenheit, respirations 19 and O2 98% on room air. What is your diagnosis? Option A, serotonin syndrome, or option B, neuroleptic malignant syndrome? Yeah, this is a high-yield question for medical student tests, of course. You're going to be asked about serotonin syndrome versus NMS very frequently. And one of the dead giveaways is if they're hyper, if they have hyperreflexia, they're going to be geared more towards serotonin syndrome. You have more of the lead pipe rigidity uh, in NMS for the motor signs. The rest of it is largely similar. You're going to have kind of the, the anxiety, the unstable vitals, especially hyperthermia. So that's kind of where my attention is drawn to in this question. Yeah, great job. Are you offering tutoring, Brad, to medical students? Um, only for, I mean, uh, if you could beat my resident salary, yeah. <laughs> All right, you, you absolutely nailed this one again. Uh, you even included one of the gold phrases that are used on these exams, the quote-unquote lead pipe rigidity. If you hear that, start to think of neuroleptic malignant syndrome, also known as NMS, immediately. Um, you did also mention, too, that NMS has the hyporeflexia, um, whereas serotonin syndrome is going to have the hyperreflexia. All right, Brad, great job with the first uh, question there. We do have a bonus question for you if you're ready for it. Sure am. All right, so what medication regimen has the least likelihood of inducing the above condition? A, amitriptyline plus fluoxetine. B, venlafaxine plus mirtazapine. C, clomipramine plus citalopram. Or D, phenylzine plus the addition of sertraline. Yeah, so just going through those real quick, um, I don't remember the exact order, but essentially you have a TCA plus an SSRI for a couple of those. And then you have an MAOI plus an SSRI for some of those. And especially like if I think MAOI, that's the one that's the biggest red flam. So the monoamine oxidase inhibitor, I believe you said phenylzine. So always, if you see an MAOI, you want to be really on guard about serotonin syndrome, you know, keeping in mind that you have to know the washout period to avoid 
uh, serotonin syndrome, or at least to, to reduce the risk. So the one here that is least threatening, um, so the kind of then next step down would be TCA as like level of threat in my mind. So the one that's least threatening, there's a SNRI plus uh, mirtazapine here, venlafaxine plus mirtazapine. So kind of a, a typical augmenting regimen. This is actually one that has a fun name in some of the literature called California Rocket Fuel. Um, fun to remember and look at the synergy between them, but that is the one that I have used and out of these would have the lowest likelihood in my mind. Yeah, and you absolutely, again, nailed it, Brad. Uh, great job. Um, you know, you touched on the MAOIs being one of the known triggers for serotonin syndrome. Um, just to remind the audience, um, this was actually the medication phenylzine, also known by its brand name, Nardole. Um, this was actually the medication that Libby Zion, who was the 18-year-old college student um, in 1984, um, who actually passed of serotonin syndrome. Um, so definitely keep that on your differential list. If you have a patient and you're, you're evaluating and you see the signs of serotonin syndrome and then you see either an MAOI or a TCA, et cetera, um, definitely keep that on your differential list. Uh, anything else you'd like to add to the conversation, Larry? Uh, maybe one thing. So we talked about Libby Zion. So in her case, she was on phenylzine. And sometimes the medications that can cause serotonin syndrome are not obvious. So obviously we think of like SSRIs, SNRIs, TCAs. But in her case, she was put on um, a paradine. So that's an opioid medication with serotonin properties as well. In addition, I believe she was also on an antihistamine. So some of these antihistamines also have serotonin properties. And in fact, as we mentioned in our first episode, uh, the first SSRI approved in FDA approved in America. So fluoxetine was actually derived from diphenhydramine. All right. Larry always giving us the psychopharm rundown. Uh, are you ready for the next question here, Brad? Yeah, let's keep rolling. I'm ready to I'm ready to fail one. All right. Two for two. Let's go. A 27-year-old female is meeting with her primary care physician for a medication review. She has a history of major depressive disorder and has been stable on her antidepressant for the last three years. At this appointment, she states that she is looking to have a child with her current partner. The physician states that her current antidepressant is inappropriate due to a higher risk of teratogenic effects in pregnancy and wishes to switch her medication. What is another feature of her current antidepressant? A. Uh, yeah, now we're getting. Oh, sorry, go on. Uh, we could cut. <laughs> You're already That's ready. True. You're already ready to guess before hearing them, Brad. He already knows the answer. Option A. Only FDA approved for obsessive compulsive disorder. B. Highest QTC prolongation of its class. C. Has a long half life. D, this medication is an inhibitor of nitric oxide synthase. E, can be used as an adjunct to improve sexual functioning. Yeah, this is this is actually one where I jumped in because I think I don't know it, uh, not concretely, but I can take a guess here. So looking at this, I medications with really long half-lives that that jump out to me are things like fluoxetine 
that I'm not aware of, of any teratogenic effects. Um, medication being a nitric oxide synthase, I, that one doesn't jump to me either as a likely answer just because medications I know that are likely teratogenic don't jump to me there. Um, adjunct to improve sexual functioning is something like buspirone, sometimes even like Wellbutrin will be switched to, as we mentioned above, but that also buspirone is not something that I have an awareness of any teratogenic effects. So that leaves to me A and B. Um, so A, things that come to mind are fluvoxamine, uh, and I'm not sure if that is teratogenic, and then clomipramine, but I don't know if clomipramine is only approved for OCD. So just because A has the medications I'm least familiar with out of these, that would be my guess for answer. Yeah, so this was kind of a trickier one. Um, so I think the first step is to do what Dr. Miller did and try to deduce what each medication is. Um, so A would definitely be Fluvox. I mean, it's kind of the weird SSRI that's not approved for depression. Uh, highest QTC prolongation of its class. So clopramine does prolong QTC, but I was also thinking something like citalopram for answer B. Oh, wait. Can I adjust my answer? I actually, now that I think about it, I think it might be D because I think that's paroxetine. Ah, there we go. There we go. So we'll give him that one. We'll give him that one. You cued me in. Yeah. So he the answer is D, paroxetine. And let me just go through the wrong answer choices first. So B... Could be a TCA for sure. It could be uh, something like citalopram. Uh, C, like Dr. Miller said, has a long half-life. When you think of antidepressants, you think of something like fluoxetine. E, an adjunct to prove sexual functioning. That's something like bupropion, mirtazapine, buspirone. Um, so the answer is D, uh, inhibitor of nitric oxide synthase. So the SSRIs are all class C except for paroxetine, which is class D. So... Uh, this medication does seem to have higher risks than some of the other antidepressants for things like cardiac malformations, as well as pulmonary hypertension. Uh, so that's how, you know, I would have approached this question. Um, other things to note. So paroxetine is an inhibitor of nitric oxide synthase, and this can be a disadvantage because it can impair sexual functioning. But at the same time, it is sometimes used for things like premature ejaculation. So it's a double-edged sword. All right. Great explanation there, Larry, and good job, Brad. Are you ready for the next question? Yeah, let's keep going. I survived the, uh, the near miss. All right. We'll keep this one short and sweet. So let's get started. Which of the following is most likely to be a potential side effect of an SSRI? A, platelet dysfunction. B, osteoporosis. C, teeth discoloration. Or D, rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, so I'm about 75% confident in this answer because this is sort of one of those trivia questions in psychiatry of where are the most serotonin receptors in the body. It's kind of like a a bar trivia version of psychiatry and you know the answer you hear some people say is the brain when they think about serotonin but then like the next level up is the gut thinking about all the serotonin signaling there but then actually all platelets have serotonin receptors on them it's part of the uh, platelet cascade like aggregation cascade i believe so then this leads me to think platelet dysfunction and you can have bleeding bleeding abnormalities with ssris uh, occasionally 
Yeah, absolutely. Great job again, Brad. Uh, you know, for our medical students who might have been confused with the last question we covered with paroxetine, um, you know, don't be too worried. That typically won't show up on your shelf exam. Now, you should know that it is class D, though, in pregnancy. Now, this question, however, could potentially show up on your shelf exam. Um, it it is a lesser known side effect of SSRIs, uh, but still you should know it nevertheless. Uh, you know, when you're a medical student, you're thinking about nausea, emesis, diarrhea with your SSRIs, uh, but you need to remember too that um, there's some of those less common side effects. Uh, you should also think things like hyponatremia as well too, particularly in the geriatric population. Uh, Brad touched on the platelet cascade. Um, just a little tidbit here, if you're ever asked the mechanism of action, platelets do have 5-HT2A serotonin receptors present, um, and SSRIs are known to interfere with this mechanism, especially with the platelet aggregation. Um, now, anything else you'd like to add to this, Larry? Yeah, so sometimes on a board exam, this type of question can show up. Uh, where the patient in the question stem is a geriatric patient, and they might be on existing anticoagulation therapy, something like clopidogrel. Um, so just keep in mind this theoretical risk. And SSRIs are on the beers list, so you know they do have some potential harm towards older patients. Larry, for our medical students who may have heard that for the first time, what's the beers list? So the beers list is a list of medications that... You may want to be careful prescribing to geriatric patients. They're not necessarily contraindicated by any means. In fact, if you look at the beers list, you'll see plenty of medications. Uh, so antidepressants, some antipsychotics, but also things like antibiotics, analgesics that you'll see all the time in the hospital that are prescribed to older patients. All right, Brad, you are four for four right now. Are you ready to go five for five? Yeah, we'll see if I can uh, right. finish strong. You are an intern rotating on a geriatric unit. One of your patients is currently withdrawing from opioids. He denies a history of complicated withdrawal. His medication regimen includes CWA with PRN exazepam, clonidine 0.1 milligrams BID, and melatonin 5 milligrams at bedtime. The patient is continuing to complain of lack of sleep and decreased appetite. He also notes some intermittent back pain. The patient is expressing SI and notes intense feelings of guilt and helplessness. After discussion with your attending, you agree on a dual diagnosis of opioid use disorder and major depressive disorder. What medication would be contraindicated given the patient's current medication regimen? Option A, Zoloft. B, bupropion, C, mirtazapine, D, citalopram, or E, ibuprofen. Yeah, this one is definitely, I think, uh, harder than the other ones. I'm thinking I, I caught on, you know, this is the first time I'm an intern and not a medical student, so I'm starting to get nervous <laughs> here. So contraindicated here. So we have Zoloft, Bupropion, Mirtazapine, Citalopram, and Ibuprofen. So, you know, Ibuprofen, things that generally contraindicate that are, are things like, I'm starting from the bottom, things like uh, 
kidney dysfunction is the main one that comes to mind. And I'm not seeing that in this question stem. Citalopram has the longest QTC risk, uh, prolongation risk of the SSRIs that I'm aware of. So that isn't seemingly where this question stem is going, unless I'm missing something. Uh, mirtazapine, I'm going to pass on for now because I'm not sure. Bupropion, what's notable about bupropion, I think, in uh, these cases is the potent CYP2D6 inhibition. So that's going to raise the level of a lot of drugs in the blood. And then Zoloft is pretty benign. Um, there's not a lot of contraindications I can think of to giving Zoloft just in general. In fact, that's one of its benefits. So sertraline. Um, so that leads me down the route of mirtazapine or bupropion because mirtazapine is the unknown. But because I know of flaws with bupropion, I'm going with that answer with the 2D6 inhibition. I'm going to guess it increases oxazepam or something along those lines. All right, so this was a pretty tricky one. So I think Dr. Miller is going with the uh, drug-drug interactions, but oxazepam is one of those benzodiazepines that does not undergo first-pass metabolism in the liver. So using the mnemonic lot, we have lorazepam, oxazepam, and temazepam. So that wouldn't have any interaction with bupropion. The answer was actually C-mirtazepine. The reason why is because it has the opposite mechanism of action. Um, so mirtazapine is an alpha-2 antagonist, whereas clonidine is an alpha-2 agonist. So if you've been on clonidine for a pretty long time and mirtazapine is added to your medication regimen, what can happen is you can get really bad rebound hypertension. And also, because these medications are counteracting each other, the mirtazapine is probably not going to be that effective. Um, otherwise, it it's kind of tricky because if you look at some of the symptoms the patient is having, such as lack of sleep, decreased appetite, and depression, mirtazapine would seem like a great medication. But because this patient's on clonidine, you wouldn't want to give him mirtazapine. Yeah, and one other thing you, you already touched on it too, Larry, is you know the primary way this could theoretically cause patient harm um and i you know it's not your fault i could have included more uh, when writing this question brad is particularly patients who are on clonidine as their uh medication for hypertensive control now it's not frequently seen uh, but for a patient who is primarily utilizing clonidine for hypertension the second you add mirtazapine um, you can set yourself up for that rebound hypertension um, there are several case reports. I know I, I was just looking on Google not too long ago, um, and there's actually quite a few listed of cases of this actually happening. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind. Um, it's it's more of a concern with the hypertensive crisis. Um, but nevertheless, uh, something I didn't even know, Brad, until I did our episode on mirtazapine recently. Um, one question for you, though, Larry, is I'm, I'm thinking about this. What about other medications, things like Intuniv? Yeah, so Intuniv, guanfacine, same idea. It's also an alpha-2 agonist. It doesn't have as much of an effect on blood pressure. So if you had someone on Intuniv, let's say for ADHD, and you added mirtazapine, it probably wouldn't cause as bad rebound hypertension, but still not something that I would want to do. Okay. All great points there. Anything you'd like to add to the, the conversation, Brad? Uh, I mean, for this question in particular, not really. It was definitely a really good teaching point for the rebound hypertension and the uh, contrary action 
however, I will teach medical students a, a trick here for any situation you find yourself in that I have now found myself in. And uh, just, you know, doctor, here is just a bad question, poorly written. Um, it's a good trick to get yourself out of any any <laughs> negative scenario. <laughs> No, but it was, it was a great question. I think a good learning point. I, I do want to say, however, that I want to give huge props to Dr. Miller because prior to coming on, we didn't give him any answers. So this is an, an organic discussion we're having here. Um, he, he, he didn't even take a look at the questions before coming on, I believe, except the first question. So yeah, I read question one, but otherwise I just hopped on my computer and ran with it. So, so I want to give him huge props for doing this with us and putting his reputation at risk. Uh, he did a really good job. So, well, you have to leave some room for an improvement as an intern, just so you can demonstrate growth over residency. Otherwise people get concerned. So uh, I'm glad to wise, wise words, yeah. very wise <laughs> all right everyone thank you for joining us on our first review episode i hope that this was helpful um, as kind of a brief summary of some of the high yield topics that we've talked about in the last few weeks uh, thank you all for tuning in to psych rounds and i hope you all have a great rest of the week